Good morning. So, you know, there's two sales I've made in my career that, in my opinion, were probably some of the funniest sales, right? So one of them was I was on a phone call. So in, in our industry, and I, we still do this today, but in our industry, when we sold on the phone, we had something called an orator or a little speaker box. You could walk up to the individual that's on the phone call, turn on the speaker box, and you can hear like a speakerphone. You can hear the other person on the phone, but then you could dictate. You could basically tell the person on the phone what to say. It's called coaching, and then they followed it back. So it wouldn't be like you, you say a sentence, and there's a pause, and then the person repeats the sentence. They have to literally say it as you say it. So it's like an echo. So it's like, hey, hey, John, 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 listen, 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 right? Now, the other person on the other side of the phone doesn't hear the echo. They just hear the salesperson. And the salesperson, the salesperson who's being coached has to use the same inflection, rhythm, timing, pause, cadence, all of it. So if I said, listen, John, I totally understand. And the person on the phone says, listen, John, I totally understand. It doesn't work, right? So we train them this way because it allows them to absorb through osmosis unconsciously all these language patterns. Closes, overrides, you know, all this stalling questions, all this really cool stuff. So I remember I'm coaching out, just to give an example of, of how much people run their patterns and don't pay attention. A lot of times to, to show our sales guys and gals that people are running unconscious patterns when they're buying something, meaning they're really not present, particularly on the phone, right? Because if you're face-to-face, even though they're still not present, by the way, at least you can see each other. On the phone, it's just your voice. That's all you've got. So we would do some things like, look, you know, answer things. Like someone would give an objection. They'd say, look, I buy locally. And then we'd say, okay, now here, give this answer. And the answer would be something like, I drive a green Jeep, but that's no problem. And then we'd continue the conversation. Now the person, our, our salesperson, would be mortified. I can't say that. They'd say it, and then the buyer wouldn't have a clue because they're just running a pattern, right? So it's not until you get their attention until you like, hey, boom, are you there? Break them out of that hypnotic pattern that you can begin to genuinely influence them. So we're in the sales call, and we're going back and forth. Now, we always teach our guys and gals to close at least eight times. Now, closing is just a simple asking for the order to go ahead with the order. Now, when you close somebody, it's not like you're saying the same thing over and over again. You have to change the offer. You change the price, change the quantity, change delivery date, you know, uh, change, you know, the M&Ms we give. You just change something because when you give somebody new information, emotionally, they can now say yes, whereas before they said no. You can change anything you want. As long as you change something, you can make another offer. So closing is a skill. It's a really big skill. In fact, unfortunately, most of the salespeople in today's society don't know how to close. They don't barely can ask for the order. They don't, certainly don't know how to close and they don't know how to close with skill or with tact. It is an art, it is a skill, you should learn it, and if you're in sales, even if not, you should learn it, and it's something that takes finesse. So, we're on this phone call, and we are closing about nine or ten times, and the person isn't budging. Now, at this point, you're saying, wow, you're closing nine, ten times, nine or ten times on a phone call. Absolutely. There's one thing that's occurring that allows us to continue to ask for the order. What is it? They haven't hung up the phone, Right? They haven't left. They're still there. Therefore, they're negotiating because really selling is really negotiating, isn't it? So they're negotiating with us. So they are haven't hung up. Now, we always said hang up, buy, or call back, meaning when you're on the phone or even in person, right, they can hang up. That ends the call. They can say, look, I really can't talk now. Coming back tomorrow. And they can genuinely mean it. Sometimes they'll say it just to get you off the phone or just to get you to walk away. If they mean it, say, great. If not, we persist. 
And then, of course, the third one in the, the desired option is they buy. Those are the only three things that will end the phone call and or a face-to-face meeting. They buy, they hang up or walk away, or they genuinely want you to call them or talk to them later on. So the fact that this person is still on the phone with us shows me that, A, they haven't hung up, they haven't bought yet, but they certainly haven't said to call back either. So I'm chatting and I realize we haven't done step one, which is to get their attention. So I break their pattern, get their attention, and then I say this. And I remember the person's name, so we're going to call her Susie. Hey, Susie, I'll tell you what. If you give me a shot today, I'll give you my toll-free 800 number. Now, everybody there listening to the call, because a little group had gathered around, looked at me like, wow, like you're a moron. Like, why would you say that? And even the guy holding the phone, because remember, I'm coaching somebody, and they're saying it on the phone, right? And they're looking at me like, that was the dumbest thing ever. Like, you know, like, no one's going to buy if you give them the 800 number. And of course, you already know where this story goes, don't you? Of course you do. There's a long pause. And I put my finger to my mouth and I go, shh, to the sales guy. Don't say anything, I tell him. I look at him and I point. I open my eyes wide. I go, don't say anything. And there's a pause. And it's a 30-second pause. Now, a 30-second pause is a really long pause. Now, how do I know it's a 30-second pause? Because every time I went for a close, I always do what? I look at my phone. I'm sorry, I look at my, uh, now it's a phone. Back then it's a watch, right? I look at my watch. Because I was taught after a close, he who speaks first generally loses. So I always look to see how long it would take. So I look at my watch. And this is 30 seconds. Ready? Now look, if Susie, if you buy from me today, I'll give you my 800 toll-free number. And then she said, by the way, that was 30 seconds. Didn't it seem like an eternity? It did, didn't it? Because the pressure built inside of them. Emotionally, right? They have to make a decision. So she says, okay. Everybody's floored. They're looking at me like I'm a genius, right? The guy on the phone, the sales guy who I'm coaching, can't believe it. He's like, how did that happen? And sure enough, we got the sale. And more importantly, we had her as a client where we still do. And I won't tell you her real name, um, because I do actually know it, but I don't want to, you know, just in case she's listening or whatever, right? But anyway, so we suffered as a client. That was, I don't know, 10 years ago. So what happened? Here's the second one. Before I tell you what happened, here's the second one. I got a phone call, and I started to build rapport with this individual. And I began, he was rude to me, really mean. And his name is Chris, and he was in Colorado, and he worked for a flower shop. He doesn't work there anymore. And I called Chris, and he calls me, and he's rude. I'm, rude. I'm rude right back to him. And people are like, how could this possibly be? How could you be rude to this guy? And I'm using the same lingo. This, you know, I'm doing what's called rapport building. NLP talked about it. And I'm going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then I say to him, you know what? I don't think I want your business, even if you wanted to give me your business. I don't think I'd want it. Long pause. 30 plus seconds this time. And he asks me, after 30 seconds, the greatest question anybody can ever ask you when you say that statement. And that question was, why not? 
Why not, he asks me. I knew at that moment in time that I had him now as a client. And Chris became a really good friend, by the way, and a client. And he kept buying up until the point where he left and started his own uh, IT consulting company. Took me five minutes to make that happen. He picked up the phone and goes, oh, it's one of you toner salesmen. And I was like, oh, it's one of you lame buyers. He goes, well, how could you be so rude? I said, why are you being rude? And we had this argument. We never talked about price, product, or anything. And I said, look, you know what? I don't even know what you're using, and you probably don't even buy the right kind of printer anyway. And he goes, I have an Okidata 182, and I buy the right kind of printer for my facility. And I go through a gross of those a month, gross of 144. And I said, that's it? Ah, you're a small fish in a big pond, man. I don't think I'd even want your business if you gave it to me. And he said, why not? Now, how did I reply? Now, we're forming to the phone call. Did I tell him why not? I said, well, here's why not. What did I do? Here's what I did. I said, what are you paying for those now? He said, $750. (sighs) I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send you a gross at $6.50 each. All that I ask is when they get there, you crack open the box, put them on the printer, run them head-to-head to to whatever you're currently using right now. And I know that once you use my product, not only will you keep and pay for it, but more importantly, I will earn your future business. Now, I future paced him. I gave him an embedded command. I did all kinds of cool stuff in that close. And he said, okay, send them to me. And I did, of course. We became client and friends. So why didn't I answer the question to him as to why not? When I said, I wouldn't even want your business if you gave it to me anyway. And he says, why not? Why wouldn't I answer that? Because truth of the matter is, the minute he said, why not? I knew he wanted me to sell him. Therefore, I didn't have to explain why not. All I had to do was what? Ask for the order to close. Remember, closing is a signal to go ahead with the order. The first part, I use rapport building, and then I use the takeaway. I can use the takeaway in rapport building because it goes really well. When you combine rapport building with the takeaway, like if you have get real deep rapport, especially somebody who's you know, not happy, and you pull away and do the takeaway, man, I'm telling you, that close works fantastically well. The problem is most people would have said, first of all, they wouldn't have done that. They wouldn't have had the cojones to do it. But secondly, they probably wouldn't have answered the why not with a close. They would have said, well, here's why not. And then they would have gone down a rabbit trail that's completely irrelevant and unnecessary. Because all Chris wanted at that moment in time was to prove to me that he could be a client. So I gave him the chance by, getting him to, by allowing him to buy from me. What happened with Susie, whose not real name is Susie, by the way. But what happened with Susie on the first order I talked about, when I said, I'll give you my 12-free-800 number, she had gotten decision fatigue. She just wanted to say yes. We had gotten her to that point. She hadn't hung up, remember? And we had closed at least eight or nine times. She just wanted to say yes. We hadn't given her a, a rational decision where she can justify it. She just needed an emotional decision. So in her, it didn't matter. It it's not logical. It doesn't matter. Her brain just wanted to go, please let me say Yes. So I can get order and move on. You hear so much about selling. You hear so much about techniques and and all kinds of cool stuff. And it's all 
it's all useful if it works. What you don't hear about selling is that it's both math and art. It is a science and a skill. You do have to count the number of closes. You do have to count the number of objections, the number of phone calls, visits. That is true. There are ratios. You have to realize people's patterns. But people buy emotionally. They don't buy logically. You've heard this. You have to understand this if you want to be great at sales or persuading somebody. We were in Modeno. So we did an amazing tour just recently, like a week and a half ago. We did this incredible tour where we went and, and how to make Parmesan Regano. And it was incredible how they make the Parmesan cheese and the cheese wheels and how many years it takes. And I've never seen that. It was amazing. And we got to taste the cheese. Oh, mamma mia, right? Molto bene. Then we went to see how, um, well, we went to see how prosciutto is made again. Oh, uh, what is it? Patanegra Italiano, this amazing prosciutto. And we found out what real prosciutto is versus fake prosciutto, just like real cheese versus fake cheese, right? And what they can't call, you know, Parmigiano Regano cheese that isn't perfect, has flaws. They can't call it Parmigiano Regano or Regano. They have to call it uh, Italian cheese. We have all these cool things. So they, Italy has this normative, right, that you have to sort of be able to adhere to in order to sell your product as something that it's supposed to be. So then we go and looked at prosciutto. Oh, delicious stuff and how they make it and how many months it takes. And then we got to buy a bunch of cool prosciutto. It was incredible. And we're going to go see how balsamic vinegar was made. But before we stopped at balsamic vinegar, the guy, we were going to stop at the Ferrari Museum. Now, I don't, I have a Mercedes. I don't own a Ferrari. I've never been a big fan of Ferraris. They're beautiful cars. I just never decided to want one. It was like, oh, I have to have a Ferrari, right? Eh, whatever. It's not the big of a deal to me. My brain says, look, man, it's a $300,000 car for the one that you would want anyway. Why spend the money on that? It's not necessary. I love my car. It's paid for, you know, blah, 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 right? Logical stuff. Smart decisions. And I'm like, why would somebody buy a Ferrari anyway? Anyway, so we go and we're going to go see the museum. And then we have a, 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 private, uh, a private car taking us there, even though we're part of a tour guide. And the guy says, look, the tour guide says, look, I'll meet you guys there. I got to take the rest of the tour, do some other stuff. But you guys go ahead and test drive the, the, the Ferraris and do what you're going to do. And I was like, what? Test drive Ferraris? What the heck? I didn't know. In my 18, so we're all of us, right? Got my 16-year-old daughter, my 18-year-old son, and my 20-year-old son. And my 18-year-old, so it's a big car fanatic, loves Ferraris, right? So we're going there just for him. That's why Nancy had set up the, the tour. So he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I was like, what? And I'm thinking, okay, well, he's 18. There's no way he could drive a car. My 20-year-old, there's no way. You can't even rent a car until you're 25. But I want to drive a Ferrari. I've never driven a Ferrari in my life. I want to drive one, right? Cool. So he said, all right, great. So we get to there, and they're just, I mean, these cars are and if you own one, I don't have to tell you, right? But they're just beautiful. They're so majestic and, and they're just sleek. And there's something about the design that makes you go, I want one, right? So I'm like, oh, I want one. Even though I really don't, right? I'm like, oh, this is a beautiful car. And they have yellows and blues and red. And these guys are driving them all over Modeno, right? The town in Italy. So we come up and the lady behind the counter, very pretty, very nice lady, starts explaining, you know, that you can drive, you can pay 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever. And, you know, the price is right, 100 euros, 300 euros, 400 euros, you know, not cheap stuff, right? But, you know, you get to drive a Ferrari, I understand. So I said, um, what's the age by which anybody can test drive a car? She goes, 18. Oh, my Lord. My 18-year-old son's eyes just lit up. He smiled so wide he could eat a banana sideways. He had the Cheshire smile. And my 20-year-old right behind him going, this is awesome. So we rent three Ferraris. 
a red one for my 18-year-old, a yellow one for my 20-year-old, and a red one for me. And my son's got the 488T, which is only a two-seater, and I've got the, oh, what is it, the California T, which is like the hard top, and I can have tiny little seats in the back because I'm taking my wife and daughter because my daughter's 16, she can't drive. And I'm thinking, cool, we're going to drive Ferraris. This is going to be awesome. And we're in Italy. It's going to be incredible. And so the guy starts talking, you know, here's the paddle shift. Here's because the paddle shift on the steering wheel. Blah, 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 blah. And starts going through the whole thing. Yada, yada, yada. I'm like, cool. You know, and I'm thinking, hey, look, you know, we'll be behind my kids. And we'll drive. And they're taking all kinds of pictures and videos, right? And oh, you get a video. If you haven't done this, there's a, you get a video of you driving the car. The one video on the, you know, going forward, one video seeing you, right? So you get this experience the whole thing. So we get in the car and, you know, we go, boom, boom. And I drive in stick. I used to have a stick, so I know how to drive stick, even though these are, these are paddle shifts. So, you know, I'm behind my kids and I'm thinking, okay, you know, let's drive carefully. We're in Modeno. We're in the city of Modeno in Italy, right? You know, this is a regular town, right? Regular streets. Like you wouldn't, you know, right now I'm in downtown Boston, so it's like Boston, right? You know, sort of, kind of. Not really, but you get the point. Anyway, so he's like, okay, go to second gear, go to second gear, third gear, fourth gear, whatever. And then we're about to get on the freeway. And I, he tells me, he goes, okay, that Italian guy, okay, when you get to do the street, you wait until there's no cars, and then you go. And I was like, okay, well, you don't got to tell me to do that. I know how to drive. I got a license. Didn't you see my license? I can drive this. I know how to drive. But I'm noticing that my children who are in front of me are ra- leaving rather fast under the freeway. And I'm thinking, oh, guys, come on. These are expensive cars. I don't want to, you know, you scratch it, do something. I don't have to pay for it, you know, just slow down. So I get there, and he goes, okay, my friend. Now, we're now, look at this way, look at this way. Now, we're in convertible, mind you. He's got his head popping up, and he goes, go. And I go, uh, and he goes, go. And I go, uh, and he goes, go. Put the pedal to the metal. Man, I put the pedal to the metal. I went all the way down, and you hear, and as you're changing gears, and we went to 120 miles an hour. In like, I don't know, six, eight seconds, less than, or 10 seconds, whatever it was. It was insane. Incredible. And first of all, kind of scary, right? Because I've never driven that fast in a regular freeway. And the, the, the car stops beautifully. Then we get off the freeway. And I'm like, I had no idea these guys were going to tell us to fly. My kids are in front of me and they're going 120 miles an hour. And this is amazing. And then we get off the freeway. We go through the town. And in the town, in a street, he says, make a right now. Go. Now, I heard go before, so I hit it. And we went 120 miles down, down the street. Like a street, I mean, a literally street in the town. And then the car was stopping and turning. It was one of the most incredible experiences of our lives. We get off the car after we drove it around. My kids are so elated. Everybody's happy. The endorphins are full-blown, right? You know, adrenaline is full-blown. We are so happy. I get out of the car, and now I want one, right? My kids want one. My wife wants one. My daughter, everybody wants a Ferrari. I didn't want a Ferrari in the early that morning, but I wanted a Ferrari when I was done with the test drive. Was it logical? Absolutely not. Is it logical? Absolutely not. Even if you can afford it, right? I mean, it's not a logical car. A car gets you from point A to point B. You can't even drive a Ferrari in the U.S., unless you go to a track, unless you want to get a ticket, it's just dangerous, right? You can't drive cars like you did in Italy and Modena on the freeway. And by the way, the cops know, so nobody does anything. And, you know, apparently it's okay because they sort of have an agreement. The point is, I can't drive a car like that Ferrari in the U.S. like that anywhere other than a track. 
and yet I still wanted the car. Why? Because emotionally, I associated the car to these incredible feelings. And I got to then see myself driving the car and experiencing those same emotions. And I could see people saying, wow, he's got a fry. Look at him, he's got a fry. Wow, he's successful. He's happy. He's incredible. He's got a fry. All these positive emotions linked to that Ferrari. Anybody who buys a car doesn't do it for logic. You know, let's say buy a, a regular car. We buy because of emotions. Once you recognize that the brain is an emotional organ, you can then become an incredible persuader, an incredible salesperson. Imagine how many times we've been told no and turn them into a yes. In fact, what I teach my guys and gals is never look for the no. And I've been doing this now for 20 plus years. Always look for, I'm sorry, never look for the yes. Always look for the no. The no gives somebody a sense of control. If somebody tells me no, they're now in control. I like that. If somebody tells me no, they're now engaged. I like that. If somebody tells me no, I now know that we're beginning to play the negotiation game. Does that make sense? Every time we close somebody on a sale and they said yes or okay right off the bat, I, or the, the hairs in the back of my neck stood up. I knew that order was going to come back. It was a boomerang order, we called it. Because they weren't really saying yes. They were just trying to get us off the phone. And then they send the order back. And nine times out of ten, that happened. Unless we figured out later on to do a solid order close. In fact, here's what I would do. is I would call back in solid order close to make sure it was accurate. And then sometimes we'd mess up the order on purpose. So that then we could get them to say, no, this isn't it. Please send me this. And we get them as a client. Don't look for the yes. Never look for the yes. Always look for the no. You want the first response to be no. That's when you know you're doing it right. So I asked him, I said, how much for the Ferrari? And that thing was like, I don't know, $350,000. And they wanted, they're like, okay, you, you, we, got, we got a sucker here, right? Or we got, a, we got a guy who wants to buy one. I wouldn't say sucker. We got a guy who wants to buy one. So the, the lady says, $350,000. And I said, wow, that's a lot of money. Are you authorized to give me a discount? If I was able to say, pay all cash today, right now on the spot, she says, no, uh, I'm not. I said, okay, who is? So she brings over the manager and the manager says, oh, I hear you want to buy Ferrari cash. I said, whoa, hold on a second. That isn't necessarily true. But if I happen to have a quarter million dollars cash right now in my suitcase, could I buy that Ferrari model from you today? He says, no. And I said, now we're in business. I asked him, I said, well, would you have the authority to be able to discount the Ferrari if I was, say, a really well-known celebrity who then would buy the Ferrari and promote it like crazy, giving you more advertising dollars, say, if I'm a Kardashian, than if I was regular me, would you be in a position to negotiate that price for all cash? He said, well, you're not a Kardashian. I said, thank God for that. But if I were, would you then be able to discount the car? Now, I'm asking if he's a decision maker, right? Because if he's not the DM, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I can't negotiate with him. He says, no. I said, great. So at what price could you personally negotiate the car if I was your favorite celebrity and I happen to have cash? in my car right now. 
and he said about $300,000 for that exact car right now. So $50,000 off instantaneously. Now, I didn't buy the car because I didn't want the Ferrari. But I wanted to negotiate with him to find out what price could I get him to be at. Now, I didn't say sell me the car. I painted a hypothetical for him. Does that make sense? He didn't, wasn't going to commit, but I needed to get him to say no at first because by saying no, he feels in control, a sense that he is now in control. But you and I both know that the person asking the questions is in control, not the person giving the answers. And all he did was give answers, but I asked a question. But I needed to get him to say no. I wanted to throw away a low possible number because as a contrast, then the other number seems higher to him. So a quarter mil to 300 is $50,000 swing in his favor. When we, when we go sell, what we're really doing is not haggling, by the way. It's negotiating. And in our minds, if we realize that they're going to buy our product, the question is at what price, how many, what color, right? What delivery? When we think about the items or the parts we have to negotiate, it makes our job easier. Whether you're buying a company, selling a company, selling computer supplies, selling cars, it's all the same. If we understand how the brain works and we utilize those patterns, then we can negotiate and or sell. The challenge, by the way, is what? What do you think the biggest challenge for most salespeople is? Take a moment. Let's think about this for a second. Now, whether you're a salesperson or not, and you are, by the way, even if you're not, you know salespeople. You know, you've talked to them. Some, some have annoyed the crap out of you, right? Where you want to tell them to be quiet and go away and, you know, you want to do something else. You've encountered great salespeople. You've encountered terrible salespeople. You've encountered somewhere in the middle. So what is the single biggest obstacle of a salesperson from being great to being mediocre or, in most cases, sadly, just pathetically bad? What is it? What do you think it is? It's really not not understanding the psychology of selling or understanding the mindset or understanding it's an emotional game. You know what it is? It's they get in their own way. They say no for the prospect in so many different ways. They'll never negotiate to discount our car, daddy. You know, they'll never say yes to this deal. They'll never buy because you said I'll give you my 800 number. They'll never buy if you're rude. Saying no for the prospect is a single number one greatest killer of all salespeople ever. And they do it all day long, every day. Just like they say no to success. Just like they say no to happiness. But they do it in a way that limits their choices. They do it in a way that limits their resources. They do it in a way that holds them back from actually performing at their best. Think about it. If you believe the prospect's not going to say yes when you say, hey, I'll give you my 800 number today, you'll never ask the question, and I would have never made that sale. If you believe, or if the salesperson believes, that being rude by mirroring somebody and then saying, I wouldn't want to sell you anyway, even if you wanted to buy from me, wouldn't work, they'll never say it, and therefore they would have gotten that sale. If they believe that they would never discount a Ferrari... They would have never said, if I had cash and I was your favorite celebrity, what's the lowest you could possibly do to buy, to sell me that car? They would have never asked for that. We got to work on our mindset above all when it comes to anything we do. It's not easy, but it is necessary if you want to be great. In sales, in business, whatever, it doesn't matter. 
I had a guy, we were, we were at uh, Florence, we went to the mall to shop, bought my son a beautiful um, Carnellini suit. What is it? Car- Carnellini, I can't say it. Carnellini suit. Anyway, one of those really nice suits, right? I think we paid 800 pounds for a $3,000 suit and we bought him some other Dolce & Gabbana stuff because he needs it, right? He was gone for two years. He came back and he needs clothes. And you know, we wanted to save money because who doesn't? And I saw this guy negotiate with this lady at the same store. And he was just rude and mean. But I don't mean rude to build rapport. He was just rude and being an a-hole just to grind her down. He was using the, in the schmutz business, the clothing business, uh, a guy in New Jersey. Anyway, he was just mean. He was absolutely, absolutely, positively mean, 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 mean. And we drove the bus back. And I said, I, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a personal negotiator. I negotiate for a living. And uh, he said, oh, okay. Well, he goes to me. And I, chat, I explained to him how negotiation really works and how he could have done a better deal if he hadn't been such an asshole. And because uh, I wanted him to change his approach, right? Because I didn't want somebody out there negotiating and haggling and being mean, right? But he'd be nice. He'll get more and he'll treat people better. And then he says, oh, you'll never be able to negotiate for Chanel. You can walk into Chanel. You can never get a Chanel uh, purse or whatever or Chanel clothing for less. He goes, oh, if you get a Chanel purse for $2,000, it's $4,000. I'll give you the $2,000. I said, well, look, I don't need your money. And I'm not going to stop my vacation for you to prove a point that I can negotiate a Chanel. But next time I'm in a Chanel store, I'll test it out. So sure enough, you know, this is now in the mall and we do a tour. And we're now in Rome under the Spanish steps. And guess what we see? A Chanel store. So we're in a Chanel store. And sure enough, the price is like $20,000 for a suit or something. So I go ahead and I say, I'm going to see if I can negotiate a Chanel store. So I walk in, I ask the lady, I said, excuse me, ma'am, this is Chanel. I know you guys are very, very, very high end. And it probably takes a special kind of client to be able to afford these things. Do you get employee discounts? And she says, well, I know I don't. I said, oh. I said, so does Chanel ever discount items? And she says, no, no, they don't. They don't ever discount items. I said, oh, okay, well. Is there anybody here that's ever given a discount to a particular person, say a dignitary or, you know, a president or a celebrity or something of that nature? And she goes, well, not that I know. I said, would you mind asking for me? So she goes, you know, asking Italian. And this gentleman comes out and he says, yes, I have given discounts before to, you know, happen to be a celebrity, an Italian celebrity. And I said, oh, I thought Chanel didn't discount. He says, well, you know, we don't discount, but... You know, sometimes every now and then, you know, it's, and he kind of smirks a little bit and he says, you know, it's good for business to see a celebrity with a Chanel purse. And I said, yeah, no, I just had that happen with a Ferrari. And uh, I said, oh, and I said, well, he would tell him the story. And he said, okay. And I said, so much discount did you give him? He said, oh, what was it? It wasn't much. It was about 40%. I said, oh, what did they buy? They happened to buy a purse and some other stuff. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, let me ask you something. If they were here right now, they wanted this particular item and I held up a purse and they wanted to pay a 40% discount again, would you do it for them? And the person said, well, you know, I, I, maybe, I guess I've done it once before. I guess I could probably do it again. So yeah, probably yes. And I said, I would never ask you to give me a 40% discount, but would you mind giving me a 35% discount if I wanted to buy this exact item? And we'll call it the celebrity discount. And the person said, well, uh, uh, uh. And that's when I knew I had him. Right? Because I already talked about discount he's been giving to somebody else. How can you not give me the discount? I'm not the celebrity person. I danced for 40. I just wanted 35%. So then he says, would you be paying cash or credit card? I said, oh, I don't really want the item unless you give me a deeper discount. Could you go more than 40%? 
And now he's got he's to think about this, right? Do I want to sell this item for less? But now he's invested. He's involved. He's got emotional connection to me. He's emotionally invested. He wants to see this go through. He wants to see what happens. You know, he's got to make the sale now. He's got deal heat. I don't, but he does. So he goes, oh, I don't know if I could do 50%, but I might be able to do 40% again if you paid all cash. And I said, well, I really don't want the item, but I appreciate the offer. Thank you so much. Have an incredible day. And I left. Because I wasn't going to buy the, the purse, right? My wife didn't like it. I wasn't going to use it. But I proved in my own mind that anything is negotiable, particularly if you know how to do it right. Because it is selling. Now, it's just for fun. It'll just prove, prove a point, And the guy will never know that I did it. Unless he happens to hear this podcast. And so there you go. But my point is that it's an emotional thing. It has nothing to do with logic and reason. People justify it. You've heard this a thousand times. The difference is... Most people say no for the prospect before they even attempt to persuade the prospect. Now, of course, this presupposes that they want the item that you have and that it's good for them, right? That they're going to get something in return that they want. If they don't want something, then I'm not so sure you want to sell them. It also presupposes that you're ambitious. It presupposes that you're ambitious and that you're wanting to become better, that you're understanding that you know, nothing in this world happens unless you sell something. The economy doesn't move unless products get exchanged for currency. So you have to presuppose all these things, and you're doing it with integrity and character, and you know, yada, 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 yada. If you have all that, and you understand that you should never say no for the prospect, and you understand the patterns that human beings have psychologically when it comes to the selling and negotiating, and you're willing to go beyond the comfort zone and beyond the no for the prospect and look for the no, get me a no on what I'm selling anything, then you can begin, if not already there, to get yourself to the next level in persuading and selling. It's a great, fantastic lesson. One that took me a while to learn because I was the biggest chicken when it came to selling. Always so scared. Even to this day, before I go sell or negotiate or do something, I get scared. And I know that's a sign I'm going to do well. You know, and, and people, it's so funny because people think that when you see these salespeople, these negotiators that, you know, they're really, the really good ones, right? Like, like me, the really good ones that they just, you know, they walk around and they're just, you know, fearless and courageous. That isn't me, right? I don't know if that's what they are, but that isn't me. If I'm going to go sell something, I'm going to negotiate. I get scared. I get butterflies in my stomach, right? I may have to make a stop at the bathroom, not to be crude, but I'm just being honest with you, you know, but I don't say no for the prospect. And I know, hey, look, man, I, I can recognize that this is an emotional pattern that I have. And now it's an exciting pattern. It means I'm going to do well. Because if I'm afraid now, right, it's not going to get any worse. It's only going to get better. And I just start doing the thing. And I get myself out of the equation. And I ask the questions. I have the outcome that I'm looking for. And I start to move in that direction. Ultimately, I don't always succeed, but I always learn, right? Like we talked about before. The fact that I'm learning then gets me to become better. And when I do succeed... It's a pretty big payoff, right? Because very few things pay as well as negotiating, whether it's negotiating a reduction in something or negotiating a selling or a buying or something of that nature. It's fantastic. So I would encourage you to go out there and negotiate and sell as much as you can. Have fun with it so that you can get better and ultimately get more of the things you want from life. Thanks again for listening. I so very much appreciate you. And I really hope that this little chat had a positive impact in your life. I know I'm better for it. This is Marks Acosta Rubio. 
and from the bottom of my heart, I'm grateful for you. Have an incredible day, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now.